Welcome to The Common Share, a podcast about the opportunities and challenges of developing cooperative businesses. The Common Share is produced by Cooperatives First, a business development firm increasing awareness and understanding of the co-op business model and supporting cooperative business development in rural and Indigenous communities across Western Canada. For a background around co-ops and a better way to do business, visit our website, cooperativesfirst.com. That's cooperativesfirst, all one word, dot com. The site has lots of great business development tools and resources for groups forming new ventures. I'm Asa Marshall, and I'm joined today by my colleagues Kyle White and Audra Kruger. So today we're talking about getting people involved in board leadership. Question to both of you. What issues do you see with trying to recruit board members? Well, I've had uh, some experience in this area. That's or You can recruit board members, but are they good, I think is the question there. And I think part of the challenge is for uh, the existing board, if you're going to find new board members, to really pit in and be really honest about what skills that they have existing on the board and what what they need. So the best recruitment plan involves a self-assessment of the board members in order to get the best board members. So I think it's starting there. Yeah, I sit on a couple of boards and we're fairly stretched for representation on that board from our membership. A lot of people, I think, especially for working boards, see that role as being something you have to do. Mm. It's not something you'd you'd want to do. And this depends on the type of co-op and the type of nonprofit. Because certainly those big guys, United Way, Oxfam, those groups aren't the ones that have issues getting people on their boards. Mm -hmm. Um, Saskatoon Co-op, even, for example, in one of their elections that I participated in, they had, I think, nine candidates running for three positions. And that's really cool. That's a great show of getting members involved and people actively wanting to participate in the governance. So there was an actual election. There actually was an election. We all got to vote. It was very exciting. Yes. There were many ballots counted. But I I can't think of the last time I've served on a board where the positions weren't acclaimed. Yeah, sort Um, of the very common, a slate of candidates is proposed mm -hmm. and accepted without question And hunted down. Yes. Is often a lot of time spent looking for someone that's willing to dedicate those extra, you know, eight hours a month because they don't want to either take on that responsibility or they also don't want to feel, I guess, guilty if they're not able to fulfill the responsibility. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it's kind of an issue that links to volunteer boards, I think, more so. Mm-hmm. I've been on the same board now for three years and very, very rarely do people take an interest in joining that board. Mm-hmm. Because we are a working board, it's difficult getting people interested in that, mm-hmm. especially when you know there's going to be, yes, the, the policy requirements, but the additional work above and beyond. So Kyle, you've mentioned the term working board now a couple of times. Can you just quickly describe what you mean by that and what the opposite of that might be? For sure. So there's lots of different kinds of boards. I would say in the nonprofit world, working boards are the most common. Um, And that's largely where the directors, the people that serve on the board, are also the ones that do quite a bit of the work. In some cases, that may be doing the cleaning, doing the maintenance, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but oftentimes it's doing things like a senior administrator might do. In the absence of a manager or an executive director, the board fills that capacity. And the co-op or the, the nonprofit that I work with, we are a working board. We do have three staff members that provide cooking and cleaning services. It's a senior's facility. But the board does have to do the maintenance. If the furnace gives out, we're the ones that are called. And um, all the administration and payment and Mm -hmm. accounting needs to be done at the board level. 
So that would be kind of in contrast mostly to a policy board where um, a board makes decisions on the direction and the policy and procedure of the organization, big decisions, and the operational side of things is typically left to a manager, executive director, and staff. Mm-hmm. The other thing about um, working boards is that they're absolutely necessary in smaller organizations mm-hmm. in the startup phase. So it takes a particular skill set and interest in, in part of the, um, the board member to take on that kind of building aspect of an organization, which can be really rewarding. But I think oftentimes um, that, that piece of work uh, can be very daunting mm-hmm. um, for a lot of folks. And I think um, you would have to be very clear in your recruitment strategy that this is actually roll up your sleeves and pit in and do this. And some people get a lot of reward out of that, um, but you've got to find them. And I think those are fewer and far between in, in terms of you know people who are willing to volunteer their time. Um, the more rubber stampy type policy uh, board would be a, a, a better fit, I think, for most people. Well, and that's if you have a recruitment strategy. Um, A lot of working boards Mm. are so taxed getting through the day to day. Mm. um, They don't have time to put together, you know, a strategy or a recruitment matrix Mm. that looks at skills. They're basically like, if you're willing to come on board, come on, we'll take you. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge for uh, those really um, stressed boards to mm-hmm. think about how that actually can be a tool to get out of the places of stress mm-hmm. as if they were to uh, recruit the right composition of uh, skill sets to the board to get them out of some of those trouble spots and to help them to devise strategies that can get them to a place of sustainability and get them maybe transitioning from working board to policy board if that is their goal. Some organizations, it's not their goal at all. So this might be a good time then to talk about what kind of skills are useful or required for a board and maybe some of the um, strategies that both of you have heard of or used for trying to make sure that you cover all of the skills that you need. For sure. So Corporatus First has a short blog post on this topic, um, who you want around your board table. And in no way does this always happen, but um, you just have your fingers crossed that it does. So in my mind, there's usually three people that you really need around that board table. You need your policy nut, which is people like myself mm. who enjoy policy and procedure and have read Robert's Rules of Order, things like that. They understand the legislation that you need to comply with. And know it and love it and will share the wealth with others. <laughs> know it and love it. You typically need to have someone who has a basic sense of accounting um, and can be your secretary, treasurer, or your treasurer. Usually that's the most undesirable job mm-hmm. on, in a co-op mm-hmm. or uh, on a board. Just because the amount of time spent on that position is much greater. Yeah, and people are scared of financial statements and numbers, Mm -hmm, I find, mm -hmm. um, which is not helpful if your organization involves any kind of money, which most do. Most do. It's hard to find one that doesn't. Um, And it's also one, actually, that because people are a little bit more insecure about it, there's a lot of power and authority associated Mm -hmm. with anyone who has that skill set or... People, the other members of the board think they have this, they may or may not have that skill set, but they know more than others or Mm -hmm. they step forward and they're confident Mm -hmm. and that's good enough, which can happen in some uh, boards. Um, Not necessarily a good thing. So what's your third, Kyle? So then the third group is tip, and this is, I think, true for most organizations, is people with either the passion or the industry expertise. Um, So if that's, say, in a housing area, it's someone with who has that knowledge of maintenance and can contribute in some way. Yeah, usually industry-specific knowledge. 
I'd like to add a fourth that is not mm. nearly as complex or noinky, but a daughter no. So someone uh, yeah. who someone whose uh, first go to is is usually no. This this won't work for the following reasons. But someone who has sort of the analytical um, ability to pose the what ifs. The worst case scenarios. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of those people can be, you know, the wet blanket and the killjoy of the group. Usually you don't want them at your party, maybe, but you want them definitely on your board because they ask the questions that um, are hard. Sometimes people can get carried away and enthusiastic, especially if the board or organization is mission driven. Um, they're looking at the end goal and um, they might ignore a series of very obvious facts um, that present themselves along the way in their eagerness to achieve said goal. And that is a runaway train that um, is really, really damaging to the organization, to whatever mission and vision, the higher mission and vision that they're working towards. So having someone, some people call them divas. I wouldn't say diva. That's that's a little too much, but someone who's, um, maybe it's a lawyer, you know, I don't know, that, that kind of um, very risk-adverse questioning type of, of person you need on your board as well. Mm-hmm. So now that you kind of know what the ideal mix might be, what are some strategies to go about making sure that you've got people filling these roles on your board? That seems like a tricky, maybe a tricky thing to do. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that, so I'm in, involved in a couple of boards and have been in the past as well. So One of the things that I thought was quite useful was to look outside the usual players. So, you know, in the years that I've been doing community work and such, it's like the same hundred people do all the same things. So it's getting outside of that group of a hundred people because you find people with different skill sets, different ways of thinking, different resources, different networks. So I think having a strategy that um, maybe... It's, you know, it's a job. So why not um, describe it exactly what you're getting yourself into? So that's getting back to the board, knowing are we a working board? Are we a policy board? How many hours per month is this? What's the commitment? What do you get out of it as an individual participating in it? And to put a call out. So not unlike a job posting or something like that, I think would be um, part of a strategy and getting it out to different and new networks. Um, of people who are actually um, finishing or completing board training. Um, there's uh, communities of practice around this kind of stuff, governance, board governance, to access those people and put it out. And it might not be inter- um, industry-specific knowledge that they have, but they might have um, skill sets around governance or you know accounting or whatever you're looking for. But So reaching out, um, legal, reaching out and trying to get to those networks instead of the same sort of doers in the community, um, getting out to new audiences. You know, on the other side, though, a lot of the smaller cooperatives, you know, your producer co-ops, your worker co-ops, they don't have that privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, more often than not, a lot of smaller organizations, they have to kind of make do with what they've got. Mm-hmm. Well, um, what do you mean by privilege? Um, they don't really, they can't look with outside themselves. Um, so if you have a worker co-op, say, of, of ah, five or six, okay. um, those five or six are most likely going to be your boards. Mm-hmm. Um and I mean, it happens all the time. You know, entrepreneurs don't necessarily have the skill sets um, in governance or in legalese or accounting. Um, those things can be learned, fortunately. Um, so they're often left looking for the types of resources that can better inform them to make good decisions as directors. Well, they already have that um, industry-specific knowledge and the expertise to do the operations. And then you also, I think, in bigger co-ops... Um, I think there's kind of a shift towards 
a more rigid way of getting people with the capacity on their board. And I think about MEC, mm-hmm. our Mountain Equipment Co-op, and the process that they go through for getting individuals on their board. Mm-hmm. It's a fairly limited scope, I think. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of uh, discussion about, is that the way to go? Mm-hmm. And is that the way forward for co-ops, for um, other nonprofits? Um, so I think what MEC did a few years ago was bring in some new criteria for people who were allowed to run for their board. The board itself recommended up to four to nine nominees based on this discretionary criteria. And part of that was that people needed to have experience serving on a board or senior management of an organization that was of comparable size and complexity to MEC. And this was a bit controversial among its members who saw that the cooperative model should really mean the board is open to anyone, any member. But MEC really felt that because it was such a big and complex organization, they required more experience of their board members. And I mean, what that does is you really do get, you know, some of the cream of the crop on your board, people with graduate degrees, expertise in governance, expertise in that area. Exactly. People that can bring a lot to that table. (laughs) And I mean, it, it raises the question, and I think our governance course gets at that a little bit in their case study. Does that deviate too much away from, you know, the foundational ideas of co-ops? Because co-ops probably more so than any other board or type of board do rely on what's called lay boards, just representation by the group. Most corporate entities do shoulder tap or bring in people for those strategic skills. Is this something co-ops should be doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, um, a really great question. I know that lots of people have been debating this back and forth, but I honestly think that it's a matter of, it's unique to each co-op. And I think there's certain times and places where it does make sense. And if it is the wishes of the membership, um, they're okay with it. And it's something very strongly communicated in a, you know effective way by management to the membership. Um, and it's supported, then great. But it'll be interesting to see how the long-term playing out of this decision by MEC, what what it looks like in a few years, because there's examples in the co-op world in the past where um, there's been that drift away from the sort of lay board kind of aspect where you have a direct and real link to the the member users, um, and therefore the board is as a voice very closely associated with you know the original purpose of the cooperative and as that drifts away what kind of impact um and Murray Fulton and others have have written extensively about this um so it's you know it's not a new idea but it would be interesting to see if if MEC and other big organizations big co-ops that are going that way um have learned from those examples um sort of unfortunate examples of of the past to see if they can navigate that. I know that they had some challenges um, communicating, not communicating it, but there was a contingent of folks within a mountain equipment co-op that were quite, quite opposed because they saw it as something that flew in the face of cooperative principles. Um, So interesting debates happening there. I'm not sure which... It depends on what day you ask me, how I feel about it. (laughs) But, But it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out. So what do you guys think of the idea that there might be value in compensating members of the board? And what are some of the pros and cons to that? By virtue of serving on three boards at the moment, it sounds very appealing. I would have just liked an egg salad sandwich. That would have been <laughs> awesome. And some juice, maybe. That some would have been coffee. huge. Yeah. You know, it, it's really interesting. And again, this comes back to 
really only a handful of larger organizations have the ability to pay its directors. It's not necessarily a bad thing. I do know a lot of people that are involved in governance or in, in developing co-ops that are opposed to paying directors because that is a voluntary position. People should be involved in that for the by virtue of wanting to better their organization. And, and that's fine. But, I mean, paying your directors does kind of change the relationship that they then have with the organization. It, it does take it from, well, I'm in a volunteer capacity. I'll just do the best I am I can. And, and shifts it more towards you're being paid by the co-op. There's a, uh, an obligation mm-hmm. to fulfill the requirements then that have been set out. You can't uh, deny the fact that our society is organized around monetary compensation and reward. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's sort of the, the modern way. But it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to get effective board governance, um, I believe. I, I do question because I think some groups say that it would be easier to get people on on the board or get people to run for the board if it was compensated. And I, I don't necessarily think that's true. Um, you look at prominent co-ops that are features in their community where serving on that board has some prestige. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a good to fair chance, I think, that you'd have the same people running regardless of if it's a paid position or not. Because, mm-hmm. um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it it's it's time at meetings, etc. It's mm-hmm. not a monthly salary. It's just sort of a. I think it's usually allocated on a day rate. Right. Right. Yeah. So not huge dollars. No, I don't think anyone's getting rich. I mean, those giant multinational corporations. I'm sure their boards are are doing quite well mm-hmm. when they have their retreats in like the Cayman Islands or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, for most of the, I think of the co-op sector in Canada. The boards that do pay their directors, they tend to be larger boards. They tend to have quite complex operations. So there is probably a sense that that compensation does equate the quality of directors that they're getting. But I know a lot of the smaller co-ops, of course, they can't. But it gets back to that issue of, is that actually necessary? Yeah, I know. I remember a discussion at, I was at a meeting of a very large ag co-op in the States, actually. And um, we were talking about board diversity. And the other folks around the table in this discussion just assumed that all my board work was compensated. Mm-hmm. And so they, they were quite surprised and shocked to learn that, no, it wasn't at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it was quite the opposite. It was sort of at, at sometimes great, you know, personal cost that, um, you know, when you have a young family and all that kind of stuff, they just had made a number of assumptions because they had all um, had compensated positions in their big uh, ag co-op or other financial co-ops in their regions. Another thing that we haven't touched on, in in some cooperatives that operate in, say, inner cities, for example, or working with um, marginalized groups, one of the strategies that they do employ is compensating directors, um, largely so they can get representation from the communities. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not uncommon for a lot of those nonprofits or community service co-ops that do provide valuable services to marginalized groups to largely be made up of people that aren't accessing those services. Or they're, yeah, in some way um, associated with the, the program or the organization delivering the service. Mm-hmm. So there's a number of assumptions that they come in with. So in those cases, providing some compensation, regardless of you know how big or small it is, might be that incentive that some people from the community need mm-hmm. to get involved because their time you know is much more precious because they have family obligations 
and, and other things that may be preventing them from serving on a board otherwise. Mm-hmm. So you guys have touched on a few of the challenges that come with having um, a volunteer board. Are, do you want to elaborate on any more of the, the challenges that might come with that? Um, I would say one of the big things that you see in some volunteer boards is that work gets concentrated. And this definitely isn't true across all boards. I serve on one service club's board that, is, you know, it's quite evenly distributed across all directors and we're all there ready to help out largely because most of the people on the board are retired and this is their primary involvement in an organization. But, you know, most boards, I would say, do have work fall on one, maybe two individuals. And those people can sometimes get burned out. That's your very diplomatic way of saying that people don't do their jobs? Somewhat, yeah. I I may have been guilty of that in some cases. I doubt that. Um, But certainly, you know, it's a big problem on boards. Um, some people aren't pulling their weight mm-hmm. um, and are largely there just to say yes or no, give mm-hmm. their approval. But those individuals that the work does fall back on, you know, that's a real stress because people do have other obligations. Is, do and, you think a part of that, Kyle, sorry to interrupt, is the fact that they, those folks that don't pull their weight, thought that they were signing up for something else? Like they thought they were maybe misinformed or... Um, the recruitment process didn't do a good enough job of outlining. Okay, so this is a working board, and this is what this is what work is, and this is what is expected. Or is it? Or you know, it could be that, or it could be just um, lazy, yep. terrible people. <laughs> I, I I think that may be part of it. Not them being lazy and terrible. Um, yeah, sometimes people do. I think sign on to things because they have the best of intentions. Mm. Sometimes that. You know, you get overstretched and you can't fulfill the duties that you thought you'd be able to. Sometimes you're not complete. Your idea of what you would be doing doesn't align with what you're actually expected to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but also a lot of times I think people stay on boards because they would feel bad if they left. You know, a lot of boards that are in crisis mode or are shrinking, you know, if they go under that number, then they may run the risk of not being able to function properly. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people may stick around on boards um, just for the purpose of being an extra body there, Mm -hmm. even though they've clearly moved on the rest of their life. So what can boards do to kind of guard against that? Is it is a part of making sure you have good orientation and training on your board? What kind of strategies can can they implement to make sure people know what's expected of them when they start? Mm -hmm. Well, I think I'm involved in something right now where we're putting together a board orientation um, package. And so what hopefully that will do, um, and we're in the recruitment stage right now, is um, once they you know are fully informed that it's actually not a working board, um, which is awesome, uh, and therefore less work potentially, um, this is what's expected of you, this is why you're being you know asked to apply, we have an application process, and that, that once they are uh, brought on, and in the first few weeks, the chair and the executive director uh, go through the orientation package with them. Um, it's a physical, you know, old school binder that they take bring to each meeting or take home with them or what have you, where they have um, all the information they should need at their fingertips. And I mean, after that, and after you, um, you know, ask the right people, uh, I don't know if there's too much more you can do. I mean, organizations need to be doing strategic planning and figuring out where their organization is going and what skills and people they need to surround themselves with to actually achieve that. 
So having regular planning sessions is always important. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, assessing the skills present at the board level is really quite critical. Because if there are big gaps, then you have a very targeted way then to start that outreach. And having nominating committees. Um, it's really important, I've found, for boards to set aside time, set aside resources and people power in a committee to actually spend a lot of time finding people, recruiting people, and raising awareness, maybe, of the board's profile so that they can actually get good people on who understand the role that they're about to step into and can contribute in the way that's needed by that board. That sounds like a good place to stop. Tune in next time when we talk about working boards versus policy boards on the Common Share. 